All right, Alexander, let's do an update on Ukraine and let's start things off with a quick update. What is going on on the ground? And then we can move over to the Munich Security Conference, which is taking place from the 17th up until the 19th. And uh, Lukashenko is also in Moscow, in Russia as well, meeting with Putin. And uh, we had some interesting comments from Victoria Newland in an interview she gave with the Carnegie Endowment and whatever else we need to talk about. But let's just do a quick update as to what's going on on the ground, because we have a lot of different different viewpoints as to what is happening in Ukraine. A lot of stories about uh, ammo running out. But then you have statements like that of Ben Wallace, which is that 97% of the Russian military is in Ukraine at the moment, and 40% of the Russian military has pretty much been wiped out. So you're getting all kinds of different different stories as to what is happening on the ground in Ukraine with the Russian military. But the last I've, uh, I've seen is that we've got one cauldron and perhaps another bigger cauldron happening in Bakhmut. Absolutely. This is exactly right. I mean, the reality is, I mean, we, I, I, I'm not going to spend much time on Ben Wallace's latest uh, fantasies. Let's focus on the actual military situation. I mean, uh, Bakhmut is now is clear is becoming an emerging cauldron because a couple of days ago, there were reports which I discussed on my channel that the Ukrainians might be preparing to withdraw from Bakhmut. They blew up the bridge. There was talk that they'd withdrawn some of their heavy equipment from Bakhmut. There was some talk that they'd left a rear guard behind. It looked as if they were withdrawing from Bakhmut. Well, if that was the decision, it's been reversed because they've just, again, apparently sent more people there. At the same time, They've lost control of one critically important village north of Bakhmut. This is Krasnaya Gora, which is on high ground. And they're in the process today of losing a second one. And this is a slightly bigger place called Paraskovievka. Now, Paraskovievka is very close to these big roads that we've been talking about. There's only one that the Ukrainians can still use to transport men and supplies into Bakhmut. But the more important thing about Paraskovievka is that if it falls, then the way starts to open up for the Russians to push further west towards a town called Chasov Yar. They've approached Chasov Yar from the south. If they push also towards Chasov Yar from the north, then we're talking about a very big cauldron indeed, in and around Bakhmut. So already it seems the Ukrainian troops in Paraskovievka are effectively surrounded, and there's apparently thousands of them there. They were uh, our troops that withdrew from Solidar have been relocated to Paraskovievka. But the access points to Paraskovievka are being closed, Latest reports suggest that the Russians are now in control of the northern part of this particular village. The Ukrainians are still trying to hold out, but it looks like Paraskovievka is going to be lost. And the Russians, once they capture uh, um, Paraskovievka, as I said, they're going to close the pincers. They're going to move towards closing the pincers 
around Bakhmut by pushing further south towards Chasufya, which they're already approaching from a different direction. So that seems to be the battle that's going on. Now, you know, this is a long, grueling battle. Um, I thought the Ukrainians might pull back. Zelensky, again, has apparently intervened. They've got to hold out there to the very last man. The foreign minister, Michael Kuleba, who's an extreme hardliner, also says that they've got to uh, hold out in Bakhmut. And, of course, the fact that Zelensky is now again talking to the West, he's addressing the Munich Security Conference, will come to all of that. He doesn't want to be seen retreating, losing ground, and that's why he's doing it. And there's also news further north, a place called Kremenaya, which is on the border between Lugansk region and Kharkov region. Very, very tough fighting going on there as well. And the reports suggest, there's reports which are suggesting that Ukrainian losses in this area are now rising to match the losses that they're experiencing in Bakhmut. So very, very tough fighting indeed. Now, I'm going to just say a few things about Ben Wallace. 97% of the Russian army is supposedly in Ukraine. Well, self-evidently, that isn't true. Um, I mean, there's... These hundreds of thousands of Russian reservists have been called up. We've talked about this many times, that they've been located in and around Ukraine. They're not 97% of them in Ukraine. There's a large Russian grouping piling up in um, Belarus as well. Um, but these are new forces. And as we've discussed in the past, they've not yet been committed to the battle. We've been seeing a lot of fighting going on in Ukraine over the last few weeks, but these fresh troops have not been committed to that battle yet. And Ben Wallace talks about, you know, these Russian army having been devastated. Um, he ought to consult the BBC, because the BBC every so often does an open access survey of Russian losses in Russia, uh, together with a website called Medusa, which is a very strongly anti-Putin Russian website based in Latvia. I mean, they trawl through social media, they trawl through newspapers, they check all the registries, they check all the cemeteries. And what they found is that the total confirmed losses that the Russian military has suffered in Ukraine since the very start of the fighting a year ago, up to 12th of February, they can only find records confirming 12,000 people killed. Uh, 40, sorry, 14,000 people killed. Now, that's a lot of people killed, but it doesn't come anywhere close to matching the kind of numbers that people like Ben Wallace are coming up with. So, you know, these figures from the BBC are confirmed concrete numbers they are by the way very much they track very closely the numbers provided by the russian ministry of defense they don't in any way correspond with the kind of numbers that ben wallace is coming up with which seem to be based on you know bad intelligence bad information coming from ukraine um things that really make no sense at all yeah, but 
I, I agree. Bad intelligence from Ukraine, bad intelligence from UK Intel services. But I mean, Ben Wallace, he may not be a genius, but you would imagine that even he would be able to to understand that 97% of the Russian army is not in Ukraine, 40% of the Russian army has not been uh, destroyed. But he comes out and he he he, he, he tells that to, to, to everybody. He, he comes out yes. to an interview and says, this is what's going on. And so my, my question for you is, is why? Why is he yeah. saying these things when you would think either, either he does believe it and he's, he's an idiot or he knows that's not the truth, but he's, he's repeating this, this claim that he's getting from somewhere for some, or from someone. And, and it's not only Ben Wallace. You're getting reports from, from various publications, collective West publications for Financial Times to Bloomberg. They're all pretty much saying the same thing. There is no ammo. There are no tanks. There are no fighter jets. And even if, even if there was ammo, tanks, and fighter jets, the situation would still not improve for Ukraine. They're finally coming out and admitting it. But yet we are getting uh, statements from Ben Wallace, like what you just talked about. We're getting statements from Victoria Nuland, who gave an interview yesterday. She said the goal of Ukraine, what Elensky is working on right now is is taking the territories of uh, Donbass, uh, Zaporozhye, Kherson, and then we're going to focus in on Crimea, and then we're going to we're going to uh, look at some sort of regime change in Russia. We would prefer the Russians to rise up and overthrow Putin. She said that just yesterday. Blinken, Blinken said that uh, that the Alensky regime, what we're working on right now, he said, is is once again uh, Donbass, Zaporozhye, um, Kherson, a big spring offensive. But but I'm going to put put a stop to Crimea. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell them not to go all the way to Crimea, and and it goes on and on and on. You know, as long as it takes, Ukraine's going to win. Milley, Mark Milley said that you know there's no way Russia can win. Uh, I'm just trying to to understand. No, it, 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 it's, it's where is that- where is the disconnect when when someone is saying there are no there's no more ammo. Look in your warehouse. Look, it's empty. There's, there's nothing left to give, but yet these officials are coming out and, and they're just making wild wild statements about the the eventual victory of uh, of Ukraine. How? How is this going to happen? How is, how is this spring offensive that Lloyd Austin was talking about two days ago and Stoltenberg was talking about two days ago, how is this going to happen when you don't have... The, the the fighters, the fighter jets, the tanks, the ammo, all of these things to match Russia. How are you going to take back uh, Donbass, Zaporozhye, Kherson, uh, Crimea? Like they're telling us, they're uh, they're going to to get these territories back. That's what Newland said. We're going to get all of these territories back. Millie yes, pretty much said the same thing. Blink in the same thing. What, what is happening here? What's going on here? Yeah. I mean, well, what is clearly going on is that there's a that there is behind the scenes a a, a, a huge row going on. And I don't when I say a row, I don't mean that the people are shouting at each other, but there is some kind of a debate going on, and you see people staking out positions. So the realists, and they are realists, are coming along and saying, "Look, we can't sustain this war. This is impossible." doesn't make any kind of sense. We talked uh, a few weeks ago about sending 88 ta- uh, Leopard 2 tanks to Ukraine. We've only been able to come up with 18. <laughs> the Germans have come up with 14. The Portuguese might 
provide another four. Perhaps later in the year, Poland might come up with some, you know, a 30 more very old Leopard what Leopard 2s, which need a lot of refurbishment. But, you know, we're not able to give Ukraine the 88 Leopard 2s that he was talking about. So we're going to give Leopard 1s instead, but that might also take a very long time. We're run out, we're out of ammo. You said that. We've discussed that at length. I mean, there really isn't much more to say. There's no way they can increase ammo production to anything like the levels that Ukraine is demanding. They're not going to provide fighter jets. They're not going to provide um, um, other sorts of equipment. So we have 100 Bradleys, 40 Marders, and that's about it. Now, given that this is so... We're starting to see pressure from all sides, from all sorts of sides. Schultz was talking about this at the Munich Security Conference. He was basically hinting. He, he's, he's now getting worried. He wants to see some kind of a negotiation take place. We've had the Republicans, the, the, you know, the, the anti-war Republicans in Congress getting increasingly organised. There's been a very strong speech from Josh Hawley. I mean, you know, saying, you know, we're overcommitted. This doesn't make any kind of sense. We can't be strong everywhere. We're depleting our arsenals in Europe. We, our real adversary is China. Why, you know, I, 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 when I first voted to send money to Ukraine, I didn't expect it would be an indefinite proxy war. But the hardliners, the neocons, this is their project. <laughs> They can't pull back on it because if they do, and, you know, neocons, obviously, their central place is Washington. So that's, you know, people like Newland, Lincoln, Robert Kagan, those sort of people. Their, their focus is in Washington, but they do exist elsewhere. Ben Wallace has been dragged in for the right. He's a very close ally of Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson wants to be prime minister again. He's, made, he's acolytes in London and making that very clear. They can't pull back because if they pull back in Ukraine, if they accept that this war in Ukraine is lost, we're going to see this as the end of their great project. You know, break up Russia, engineer regime change in Moscow. It's all going to fail. In fact, today, as I'm talking to you, there's an article in The Guardian by another neocon, Simon Tisdall, my old friend. He goes on and says, you know, um, you know, people like Liz, Liz Truss, the former British foreign minister, talking about China. This is a mistake. We should be focusing instead on Ukraine, on Russia. China is too powerful for the moment. We've got to pick off the Russians first. So they want to keep this war going. They want to launch this offensive there may not be enough tanks, there may not be an inf any enough infantry fighting vehicles, but you've got to keep up the magical thinking that this, that this thing, this war is going to somehow turn out right. So you bring up as another uh, journalist in the British media did today, you remember we talked about the budget, the Russian budget deficit in uh, January. He's created a whole <laughs> article around this fact that, you know, this is proof that Russia is about to implode economically. So, you see, they, that's what they want to do. They want to keep the war going. And they're saying, look, things 
might not be going too well for the moment in Ukraine, but just hold on a little longer. We'll launch another offensive. We'll throw more tanks and more machines at the Russians. They've got 97% of their army in Ukraine. They've lost 40% of it. Something will crack. And, you know, they're keeping their fingers crossed and hoping for that to happen. Because if it doesn't happen, the whole point of being a neocon disappears. Because if you can't take out Russia, if you can't take out Putin, if you can't achieve regime change there, the whole neocon project goes up in smoke. Yeah, the, the neocons are going to definitely focus on China after Ukraine. Let's just say they, their, their goal is to focus on China after Russia and Ukraine, but they have to deal with Russia and Ukraine first. For some reason, the neocons can't just skip over Russia, Ukraine and go to China. They have to deal with Russia and Ukraine first. I, I don't know. Maybe it's it's some sort of neocon checklist or I don't know. Maybe that's like the the uh, the, the the terms and conditions when you sign up to be a neocon. <laughs> this is this is the path you have to follow. But they have to deal with uh, with Russia and uh, and Ukraine, and and nothing else matters at this point in time. So um, we we do have the Munich uh, uh, Security Conference taking place at the same time. We have Lukashenko meeting with uh, Putin. It seems like it's business as usual between Russia and Belarus. Um, but in Munich, what what are we going to, to see in Munich? Because last year, it was an S show because you had Kamala Harris there, you had Ursula there, Olaf Scholz was there, and you had uh, a suit and tie, a suit and tie, Zelensky running around Munich, and he was talking about nukes. We're getting nukes. We deserve nukes. Um, it's part of the, what was it? The Budapest memorandum? That's right. Was that the memorandum with that, that they always cite his, this is proof. This is proof that we deserve nukes because of, of, of this memorandum, which I think we've debunked like 10 times in our videos, but, uh, yeah, many times, but that was last year. And that was kind of the, the final straw for, for Russia to, to green light the, the uh, the special military operation, you know, um, Zelensky running around saying he's going to get nukes and no one in the West stopping him from running around and saying these things. No one told him to, to shut up, which I thought was was interesting. But this year, what are we to expect this year? Because we pretty much have the same diplomats. Oh, yeah. It's all the same people. It's all the same people. It's all the same people. Yeah. Just before just before we. Go to Munich. I mean, just just to explain about neocons and neocon thinking and why they are so, you know, fixated on Russia. You know, some of them may have historical grievances towards Russia, you know, that arise in their family histories. But always remember the two great foundational texts of modern neoconism was Dzerzhinsky's Grand Chessboard and this... uh, um, paper, this memo that was written by Paul Wolfowitz right at the start of the um, George W. Bush administration. And Dzerzhinsky talked about, you know, fragmenting and controlling Russia, and that way you'd control the globe and, you know, put pressure on China. And Wolfowitz said that the central objective 
of US policy must be to prevent a challenge emerging against the United States from Eurasia. And of course, he was talking about Russia again. So this is their, these are their foundational texts. These are their gospels. And it's very difficult for them to break away from this. That's why they come back always to Russia. Why, yes, of course, they want to come after China eventually, but they can't bring themselves to do that unless this unfinished business with, they have with Russia is finally resolved to their satisfaction. So that's, that's the thing to always understand about the neocons. Russia first. It's always the way with them. They will never change that. And they will resist any attempt from someone like Josh Hawley, for example, to drag them away from this and to get them to start thinking about other things, like China, for example. But anyway, let's go back to Munich. Munich last year was a circus of people who'd got themselves high in expectation that there was going to be a war. The war was going to end very fast. They'd have all the great sanctions that they were going to impose. Russia was going to collapse. You know, this, you know all the restraints had been cast off. You know, all these realists who'd been holding them back. You know, they'd all finally gone. You know, Obama, who had his, you know, all, you know, occasional doubts, he'd gone. Trump had gone. All of those people had gone. So now we were going to be able to go ahead, all guns blazing, and we were going to do it. And I remember I was watching and, lead, and reading the speeches coming out of the Munich Security Conference. And this was the moment when I said to myself, my goodness, we might actually be in a war. Up to this point, I thought we might be able to avoid a war. But listening, listening to the sort of way these people were talking was what made me think that, you know, war might actually be coming. This year it's different because all of those confident predictions have not happened. We've not had Russia collapse economically. We still hope it will happen, but it actually so far hasn't happened and the IMF is talking about growth and um, we are we have not won any great military victory over the Russians we were hoping there would be a knockout blow that the Russians would hit their heads bangs their heads against the wall we provided built all these defenses in eastern Ukraine didn't work out we launched those offensives in Kharkov and Kherson and they didn't create the crisis and panic in Moscow that we expected and we're losing ground in Bakhmut and all sorts of things are going wrong instead. So it's a much, much more somber mood this time. And, um, of course, Zelensky is there. He's out with his begging bowl. He wants every conceivable weapon system <laughs> that you can find. He wants the taboo on Western weapon supplies to Kiev to be extinguished. I mean, what taboo he's talking about, I have absolutely no idea. He says that Ukraine is David to Russia's Goliath, but it lacks the sling. It lacks David's sling, which is an interesting uh, uh, metaphor, by the way. But, you know, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about nuclear weapons this time, by the way, but which he did last time, as you correctly said. But, you know, this time he's not talking about that. But everything he says is predictable. All of the others, they're also talking so far. The mood seems to be much more sombre and 
The keynote speech so far has been by our old sleepy friend, Olaf Scholz. He says, yes, we're going to supply Ukraine with all kinds of weapons, but the key, the most important thing, is to avoid a conflict between Russia and NATO, and we need to try and find some means to de-escalate. So you don't need to take that especially seriously. I don't. But it's very different from the kind of rhetoric we were getting last year. Is that a sign that there are certain people like Olaf Schultz and maybe Nord Stream uh, has that has had that effect on him where they are saying this is enough? Not only is this enough, but uh, these neocons are, are are kind of maniacs and and the guy like myself, Olaf, I'm kind of in over my head. Do you think that may be at play or or not yep. yet? They still need some time to get there. I think they still need some time to get there. And I think that there is a debate going on. As I said, I mean, I don't. Rao is too strong a word, but there is a debate going on. And this is why we're getting all these, you know, extraordinary claims from people like Ben Wallace about the Russian army is 40 percent degraded and that kind of thing. Um, so we're getting all, there is a debate that debate is principally happening not in Munich or in Berlin or in Brussels or in London. It's happening in Washington. Um, there's an article today in The Guardian about, you know, a worried article. Are the, uh, um, is the Republican right, people like Hawley, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, are there real risk to um, continued funding for Ukraine? Um, I don't believe that, by the way. I think that the pro-war coalition in Congress is still overwhelmingly strong. I mean, Mitch McConnell is still committed to giving Ukraine and the administration all the money it needs to wage the war. But I think the other force that's now you know, becoming increasingly dominant, that's starting to get its points across through the media. You talked about the articles in the Financial Times, in Bloomberg, in all sorts of places, about the Daily Telegraph, also Politico, about the fact we just don't have the weapons to give Ukraine. I think the militaries across NATO are starting to um, to exert, to, 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 to assert themselves. So no Atakams missiles from Ukraine, not because we're really afraid that providing these missiles to Ukraine will cause an escalation crisis. But we just don't have enough. <laughs> the Patriot systems, do you remember? We're hearing lots and lots about those. Well, they're not appearing till 2024. We're going to try and produce apparently a few missiles between then and now. <laughs> um, tanks, well, 88 tanks. Ukraine was supposed to get Leopard 2s. They're only going to get 18. <laughs> um, um, we're out of shells. Um, the British Air Force isn't going to part with any of its fighters. Ben Wallace himself had to admit that a few days ago. Didn't like to do it, but he was forced to. So this is, this is the real obstacle the neocons and their friends are running up against. And we've had the RAND Corporation saying a prolonged war isn't in our interest. And we've had the CSIS saying... Um, we're running out. Our, our stocks are becoming depleted. We've had the people from the production side. There's an article by uh, Dr. Jack Watley from the Royal United Services Institute in the Telegraph saying we can't just increase 
shell shell production tomorrow. I mean, it doesn't work like that. And that's what the neocons are up against. So, of course, what they're going to try and do, and we're going to see that in Munich, even as the sort of voices of restraint, people like Schultz, probably Schultz is very upset about Nord Stream. I think he's even more upset about the tank issue. He didn't want to send the tanks to Ukraine. Not because, again, he's got any particular concerns about the Russians. He knows that the military just doesn't have that many tanks. Um, he's also apparently not on speaking terms any longer with Baerbock, because apparently she's been saying cracking jokes at his expense. All of that is coming together, and you can start to see that the lines are start that the bath the, the lines are starting to form. And the danger is what the neocons are going to do is they're going to tell Ukraine, look, we're up against the clock. Sometime around the summer, support is going to run its course. You've got to achieve some kind of breakthrough over the next few weeks and months. By midsummer, you've got to take the offensive. The neocons have never worried too much about the practical realities of things. So they want Ukraine to launch its attack on recover, recover all of Donbass, recover all of Kherson region, recover all of Zaporozhye. They want that offensive to happen. And Ukraine is going to be pushed into an offensive it's simply not really prepared for. Yeah, an offensive with what? That's, that's with my, what? Yeah. That was my point from the beginning of the yeah. video. An yeah. offensive with what? Uh, CNN is reporting that uh, Ukraine is burning through ammunition faster than the U.S. and NATO can produce it inside the Pentagon's plan to close the gap. And they're talking about how the Pentagon is now uh, ramping up the production of, uh, of ammunition for Ukraine. And they're going to be moving to a 24-7 schedule to, uh, to keep pace with Russia. It, it, it's not that simple. I, I no. just can't bring myself around to believe that it's just as no. simple as flipping on no. a switch and all of a sudden the U.S. No. is now in, in a war economy for Ukraine. It, it doesn't. It, it doesn't add up, and everything that I'm that I'm hearing is is confusing me because you're getting all these different, like we were talking about, you're getting all these different statements and all of these claims about Russia's weak, Russia is losing. Um, we're gonna we're gonna win, but we don't have ammo, we don't have tanks, we don't have fighter jets. But the hope strategy is going to prevail. I think even Seymour Hersh said in an interview that the Biden White House is is relying on magic. To, yeah. to win the conflict in Ukraine. I think that's the word he used, magic, a yeah. magic victory in Ukraine. Um, and, and then I'm seeing the reality, which is that the physical reality is it's not there. The yes. equipment, the ammo, the troops, it's not there. While Russia has conserved all of uh, all of their troops and, and they've got the ammo, they've been producing the, the tanks and the ammo for, for so long. So my point is, is that the Pentagon, I believe, some people, the Pentagon, put a timeline for this to be around the summertime. This is what they said about a month ago. They said, we expect the war to conclude around the summer. That, that was their timeline that, the timeline that they kind of fixed to this conflict. I think that's what's coming around. I mean, that's, yes. it seems like 
like this is this is what's going to happen is this summer timeline and and the goal right now from from the warhawks is exactly as you said is there a way any way that we can magically create some sort of victory from now until then and maybe then we'll be able to to extend this summer deadline from the military and then push it to to the winter because it seems like the military or parts of the military have said we're giving you until the summer that's it yes i mean that's exactly i think exactly right in fact i suspect that there's been discussions i mean a few weeks ago the uh there would the the naval chiefs in the u.s were saying um we got about six months which is correlates with the summer that you know with within after six months the United States needs to make a decision. Does it go on supporting Ukraine or does it look after itself? And that, that, that was from the Navy. And remember, the Navy is ultimately, you know, the core along, you know, the Navy and the Air Force are the core of the US military system. And I would argue the Navy is ultimately the more important of the two. So, you know, that's, that's the Navy speaking. And I think this is probably right, that they say, you know, up to the summer, you don't achieve your breakthrough by then, then, frankly, you've got to you've got to you've got to seek peace, even if it's on Russia's terms. So that's why we see all this frenetic activity. Why there's talk about you know more offensives. Why there's talk about giving, uh, um, um, you know, getting getting uh, uh, Zelensky to launch his latest attack and talking about, you know, the magical thinking, 40% Russian military destroyed, uh, Russia about to run out of this, that and the other. I mean, it's always been proved wrong. But anyway, that that's what it's all about. It's keeping your fingers crossed, hoping that somehow Ukraine will pull it together, get some kind of breakthrough in Zaporozhye, in Kharkiv, in wherever it is, and then we'll we'll be able to do that which we always have sought to do: achieve regime change in Russia and make good on our grand plan. It's probably going to be a very dangerous couple of months because, of course, if it does if it goes right, which I don't expect, well, it'll be a crisis. But if it goes wrong. It could be a bigger crisis because I don't believe that these people will simply go away. I think what they will do if it goes wrong is that they will push back. They will try nonetheless to get that timeline extended. And I suspect that the row, which is already happening, this argument, this debate that's already happening, will finally burst out into the open. All right. Uh, any any other final thoughts before we wrap this up? I mean, just look at the just look at the mood change. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, they were deliberately it was triumphalism. It was they were deliriously optimistic about the way things were going, um, and the the fact that there's been this change of mood tells you um, that you know when they talk about spring offensives and, you know, people like Austin talking about and, and merely talking about spring offensives. The military doesn't really believe in them, but the neocons absolutely do. And I have to tell you, I, I can't help but think that if there's a crisis by midsummer, 
where they're, they're going to try and push not just for some more, um, some more support for Ukraine, but more direct support from the Western powers for Ukraine. In other words, Polish troops going in, American pilots operating F-16s, that sort of thing. So I, I, I still think this is going to be a big row, but, but the danger of that kind of escalation might actually grow. Yeah, I, I agree with you. But there's at this point, I believe that there's no escalation that the West can do outside of a full on invasion of NATO into into Russia, into Ukraine. There's no escalation that the Russians can't can't match and exceed. Yeah, I know. It's, we Whether can't, it's we can't, NATO pilots I, flying the F-16s or Polish troops yeah. entering. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 we come back to what Obama of all people, said he did sometimes get things right in that interview with The Atlantic that he gave back in 2016, that at all times the Russians in Ukraine have escalatory dominance. Whatever we do, because it's their neighbourhood, they can not only match it, they can surpass it. So if we send in tanks, they'll send in more tanks. If we send in our troops, they'll send in more of their own. If we send in aircraft and fighter jets, they'll shoot them down. And we can never ultimately prevail in this kind of conflict. And talking about sending, you know, Western forces to take on the Russians. It's a really interesting article that I read a couple a short time ago. And it's been circulating in private. Apparently, I've only seen bits of it. But he pointed out how unrealistic ultimately it is for the West to take on Russia, even in conventional terms in this war, that it required a million troops, a million men from, you know, all the various branches of the NATO military to defeat Saddam Hussein's army in Iraq in 1991. And against the Russians today... That simply isn't going to happen. We don't have those million men and nobody's going to really take on that kind of risk against the Russians. So, but, you know, that is the risk we're running. I mean, that's what these people might want to do because if the neocons know, if they lose in Ukraine, the core project is lost. Of course, they won't go away. They'll still press on for more conflicts in the Middle East, against Iran, against China, wherever they can. But no one any longer will see the neocons as the future. Yeah. The Duran.locals.com. We are also on Rockfin as well. And go to the Duran shop. 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.